And Friday marks the end of a rough week for the banking industry. The fall of Silicon Valley Bank in just 48 hours is the second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history. And it sent shockwaves from Silicon Valley to Wall Street to Main Street. As we noted, Signature Bank, SBNY, ordered to close. Get more on the ripple impact for maybe other regional banks. We're going to start with <laughs> worries over the banking system and the massive efforts now to boost confidence. In the latest effort, California-based First Republic Bank was given a $30 billion lifeline from 11 other banks. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So last week was truly an insane week, and I'm sure all listeners will agree. Yeah, we actually recorded our last episode a couple of hours before the Silicon Valley Bank news broke, so we didn't get to touch on it at all last week. But no fear, we are giving you the full story this week. From the rumblings that took down Silicon Valley to Signature Bank and the hit to regional banks across the country and what that means for real estate. So the borrowers, the account holders, the sectors at large. And because we know no one cares about anything else right now, we're not going to go over any other news that happened last week. Right. This was the news. The first banks to collapse since the Great Recession. So... Okay, should we begin with the lead up to Silicon Valley? Yeah, so let's start with Wednesday, March 8th. Silicon Valley Bank, which was a major capital source for startups and venture capital firms, but it also loaned out mortgages and debt for commercial properties. SVB said it needed to raise $2 billion in capital. And why was that? The bank said it needed to, quote, strengthen its financial position. It had been forced to sell off a portfolio of bonds at a huge loss, $1.8 billion. And obviously, that spooked investors. So on Thursday, SVB came up with this plan to raise all this cash, but that spooked investors even more. It was almost like the more they tried to raise money, the more investors were freaking out. A couple of attorneys told me it was like this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. Which to me is one of the most compelling things about markets. The more a company or a bank or the government draws attention to shortcomings, the more reactive stakeholders become, which can just exacerbate whatever the troubles were in the first place. Right. It feels emotional and with banks that can manifest as a run. Mm -hmm. So customers get worried a bank won't have enough money to cover deposits, so they try and pool their money before everyone else does, and that ensures that the bank will not have enough money. Right. So we started seeing this huge outflow of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. I have a couple of friends who work at startups, and they were telling me that their firms were racing to take out cash. Right. And you need deposits to be able to lend. And lending is how you make money as a bank. So obviously, a bank run is not good. Mm -mm. And these firms wanted to take out cash because the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, only insures up to $250,000. And some of these companies held millions in SVB. I want to take a second to pause right here. You mentioned that SVB also held real estate loans on their books. So can you tell us how much exposure they had to real estate markets? Sure. So about 15% of their loans were secured by residential mortgages and commercial real estate at the end of 2022. That totaled about $12 billion. So not as much as some of the larger lenders out there, but it's still substantial. About $8.3 billion of those loans were for personal residences or mortgages, and about $2.6 billion was designated for commercial real estate. Okay, so heavier on the residential side. Mm -hmm. Got it. 
So back to the timeline of SVB. Tonight, a bank has been seized by state and federal regulators. This is the biggest bank failure since 2008. And this evening, so many customers demanding to know, where is our money? On Friday morning, California regulators shut down the bank and placed it under the control of the FDIC. So on Friday, March 10th, the bank ceases operations and, as I mentioned at the top, becomes the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. I think that's worth repeating because it's huge. So obviously we care that SVB held real estate, but why is the bank's real estate exposure a key part of what happens next? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when a bank failed during the financial crisis, the FDIC had lined up buyers. Take Washington Mutual, for example. After that bank failed, the FDIC took over operations and JP Morgan came in and bought the whole bank for $1.9 billion. It was pennies compared to the $307 billion in assets Washington Mutual had. So when the FDIC took over on Friday, everyone was expecting the federal government to line up a buyer by Monday morning. Someone would swoop in and buy up its assets. And in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, whoever would be buying the bank would also be acquiring their loans. So borrowers would get a new lender. Right. And when you get a loan, you probably have an established relationship with that bank, right? You know, you should know at least if they're going to be aggressive if you default, if you're delinquent. You should be able to know if they're going to want to extend the loan or refinance. You, They know you and you know them. But in this case, a new lender could come in and say, hey, we're going to actually foreclose on all your troubled loans. We're not going to work with you. We're not going to put up with any sort of delinquency or default. And that's obviously an extreme hypothetical, but it could happen. Yeah, I've heard that floated as well. And given that SVB was a mortgage lender too, that must have freaked out a good number of homeowners. Yeah, our San Francisco reporter Emily Landis had a story about exactly that. Some residential brokers said the SVB news had stalled some in-process home sales over the weekend. The poor for sale market, like first it's bidding wars, then it's mortgage rates, and now it's a bank collapse messing up their closings. Right, a couple of pretty extraordinary years. So as is often the case with bank runs, the siege on Silicon Valley Friday was not contained to the West Coast. There was a contagion effect of sorts, which plays back into that self-fulfilling prophecy idea. If customers think the shit is hitting the fan, they will panic and ensure the shit hits the fan. Now to a developing story after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, another bank just shut down. Regulators today abruptly closed Signature Bank. It has offices throughout New York and Connecticut. Obviously, yeah, that's a sweeping generalization, and it's not entirely clear if SVB's collapse spurred signatures, but we do know that there are a few connections there. They're both smaller regional banks, so the failure of SVB does put pressure on the whole system. They also both held clients with more in deposits than the FDIC insured $250,000. So SVB focused on tech and New York-based signatures customers were primarily real estate and law firms. And then there's the crypto exposure, right? Yeah. So Signature back in 2018 became one of the earliest banks to attract crypto customers. And the bank had exposure to the FTX fallout, as we'll explain in greater depth later. So last week when Silvergate, which was a crypto servicing institution, it voluntarily closed, that may have spooked Signature clients as well. On Friday alone, Signature customers pulled more than $10 billion in deposits from the bank. 
And on Sunday evening, that bank failed too. It was the third largest in U.S. history, according to CNBC. Luckily, Monday morning, regulators stepped in and said, okay, we're going to back not just deposits of $250,000, but all deposits at Signature and Silicon Valley. Signature alone had nearly $89 billion worth of deposits at the end of 2022. That's according to filings with the SEC. And that step definitely soothed markets a bit. Regional bank shares had gone into freefall on Monday morning, but as soon as the federal government stepped in, they were able to coast for the rest of the day. For context, the KBW Bank Index, which tracks regional banks like Signature and SVB, had sunk 13% within the hour and a half after markets opened Monday. It ended the day down 11.6%. There was this article about how um, South by Southwest in Austin was happening last week, actually, when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And apparently when they landed back, like when this flight landed back from Austin, the crowd like erupted in cheers, like landing and seeing this news. Um, so people were, I think, pretty happy about it. But, you know, talking to landlords and industry folks Monday about the fallout, you could you could really still hear the panic in their voices. It was like checking in with someone after a natural disaster. You know, there was relief that things were okay now, seemingly, but definitely the adrenaline was still pumping. Some owners had spent the weekend just relentlessly shuffling money between hundreds of accounts to make sure none of them held more than the $250,000 that the FDIC would typically insure. Would typically insure. One landlord told me he'd been working 18-hour days since Thursday to do that. And until we heard from regulators and President Biden Monday that all deposits would be safe, a lot of landlords had no idea how they were going to run their businesses after Signature failed. They didn't know if they'd be able to deposit rent checks, if they could pull money to fulfill maintenance requests, if they could pay their bills. Jay Martin, he heads the landlord group CHIP, called it an existential weekend for property owners. So we're recording this four days after the collapse, and despite the government's backstop, there are still a number of unanswered questions. One of our senior reporters, Keith Larson, has been reporting this alongside us, so he's going to help us analyze the loose ends that both of these collapses have left and how we've followed those threads throughout the week. Keith, thank you. Hi, Keith. Hey, guys. So, yeah, two areas we initially identified as big question marks for banking clients were the cash management side of Signature's business and also the letters of credit that the bank had put out. Explain the cash management side, if you could. So cash management is a service where basically lenders store deposits for property owners, and this could be rent money from apartment tenants. Um, but when the bank was in danger of collapsing, landlords freaked out about losing money and try to move it as quickly as possible. I wanted to turn to the letters of credit, which affected SVB too. Letters of credit are often used by commercial tenants as security deposits. Say a startup wants to lease office space. They don't have the cash. They can get a letter of credit from the bank, which says, if this tenant doesn't pay rent, you can take out the money from us. It's a guarantee, essentially. But in the case of the bank's failure, the FDIC can actually choose to void the letters of credit, and they have before in 2009. I spoke to this attorney at Alan Matkins in L.A., and he was like, I've been telling clients to only get a letter of credit at a mega bank since 2008. And, you know, he's saying that because the FDIC can void them. 
And if that happens, landlords have no recourse to withdraw payments if a tenant doesn't pay their rent. And we don't know yet, right, if SVB's letters of credit will be covered by the FDIC? No, attorneys are telling any holders of SVB-issued letters of credit to consider themselves, quote, unsecured debt holders, which the federal government has said will not be covered like the deposits will be. And uh, Signature is also big on subscription lending, which is essentially providing lines to different institutions, um, with a big focus on private equity and venture capital. And then even though the FDIC is supposed to cover deposits over $250,000, we still don't know when exactly folks with accounts holding more than that threshold will be able to access their money. And that can impact you know, an owner's ability to pay their bills or just move funds to another bank. And we also don't have a clear idea of what's happening with some of the loans at this point. You know, we've heard from owners that some are being serviced as usual. And we know Signature Bridge, the intermediary bank that assumed all of the signature assets and deposits has opened for business. But other landlords said they've received zero communication from the bank. One manager I talked to Wednesday said she had a bigger co-op loan with Signature and she just hasn't heard from it on whether the loan will be serviced as usual. And there's even more uncertainty around delinquent loans or loans that hadn't closed when signature shut down. Uh, we still don't know if those will go through or not. So coming out of all of this chaos, our reporting is really focused on five different avenues. First, what this means for other regional banks. Second, what happens to Signature's loan portfolio. Number three, what this means for the multifamily market and real estate lending in both New York and elsewhere. Four, what we know about crypto's role in all of this. And five, how these twin collapses may impact the Fed's decision to boost or pause rates this month. So that's a lot to hold in your mind, but bear with us. We'll get through them all. So let's start with other regional banks first. We talked about the KBW Regional Bank Index just tanking Monday, but within this sweeping category of regional banks, we know some got hit harder than others. And I'd say First Republic took the brunt of it. Yeah, absolutely. Their stock price plummeted more than 70% at one point on Monday. Trading was halted a bunch of times by the SEC as well. And why First Republic specifically? So a lot of it had to do with the fact that First Republic also has a ton of uninsured deposits on its books, and investors were worried about that. About 70% of its deposits were uninsured, which is the third highest behind Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. It's also based in San Francisco, so I think that there was also some concerns that it was also a tech lender. But I want to emphasize that none of it, at least from what we know so far, has anything to do with bad commercial loans on their balance sheet or a bunch of defaults or delinquencies. And it also doesn't really have anything to do with their liquidity. They have cash, but it's a run on deposits that is worrying investors and you know, that percentage of how many of their deposits are uninsured. Yeah, that's good to know. So- I was talking to an attorney earlier this week, and his sense was if First Republic fails, that's going to signal wider trouble in the market, especially for real estate, because who knows if the government extends the same backstops it did for SVP and Signature, and who knows how much more extreme the contagion effect might be. So where are we now with all of that? So on Wednesday, Bloomberg reported that First Republic was looking at a sale or other options to raise liquidity. Then on Thursday morning, a bunch of news outlets reported that instead of a sale, a bunch of banks were actually going to put money into First Republic. 
And on Thursday afternoon, we saw that happen. First Republic got a $30 billion lifeline from 11 different banks. And is it equity in First Republic cash? What exactly is the $30 billion? It's $30 billion in uninsured deposits. So Bank of America, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo will each contribute $5 billion in deposits. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will each put $2.5 billion in. And BNY Mellon, PNC Bank, State Street, Truist, and U.S. Bank will each put in a billion dollars. Wow. Okay, so they're opening new accounts, essentially. It's not a sale. No. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and the one who reportedly came up with this idea of deposits through discussions with J.P. Morgan Chief Exec Jamie Dimon, she thought it would be a really strong sign that the private sector has faith in First Republic and confidence in the banking system in general. The New York Times had some reporting about this. Right. She tried to assure senators and the public of that, too. This is Yellen speaking at a Senate committee meeting last Thursday. I do believe the banking system in the United States is sound and resilient, and we wanted to make sure that the problems at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank didn't undermine confidence um, in the soundness of banks around the country. And um, that's we wanted to make sure that there wasn't contagion that could affect other banks and their depositors. But by Friday morning, it didn't seem to have quelled investors' fears that much. First Republic's share price was down almost 30% by midday Eastern time on Friday. A number of analysts shared their concerns with Bloomberg, saying shareholders were still at risk because no equity was actually put into the bank. And some said it actually confirmed the worst. It confirmed people's anxieties that First Republic was indeed in financial trouble. So do you think some people see it as a temporary solution or no? Yeah, a group of Evercore analysts said, quote, the deposit infusion allows the bank to fight another day, but it is a temporary solution. And I don't think we knew this at the time, but the deposits only have an initial 120 day term. So we don't really know what's going to happen after that. And Keith, we haven't seen any buyer emerge for Silicon Valley Bank or Signature yet, right? No, not yet. We're still trying to figure out who would buy them. Um, Will it be a bank or a private equity firm? Will the loans get sold off separately? With Signature, it sounds like it's going to be another regional bank uh, who's interested in the real estate loans. Okay. So then turning to the impact on real estate, Signature was the go-to lender of commercial real estate in New York, and the majority of its portfolio was in multifamily. Keith, you and I, you know, we worked on a reaction piece about where landlords and investors' fears lay after they learned their deposits would be covered. And my takeaway was this continued contagion effect threat. Yeah, attorneys were saying the threat was there because landlords are pulling so much money from Signature, but also from other regional banks over the last weekend and throughout the week. And that could impact lending to those landlords, especially when you look at rent-stabilized multifamily. Yeah. Talking to industry folks, the primary bank of concern seems to be New York Community Bank. It's like the number two lender for multifamily in New York City. So if Signature is more or less off the table for new loans and NYCB doesn't have enough deposits to lend, that's a problem for the industry. So far, it's been radio silence from NYCB's spokesperson, so no clue what's going on with their deposits. But I did talk to Michael Shaw, the CEO of Dell Shaw Capital, last week, and he said on Tuesday he'd gotten 
something like 30 texts from landlords saying they were pulling everything from regional banks. And what options does that leave real estate customers with? So clients could go to bigger banks, which is what I heard from some landlords right after the collapse. They pulled their deposits and they put them in a Wells Fargo or a JP Morgan. The annoyance there is bigger banks pay lower interest rates, but it's better than feeling unsure if your money will be insured. One landlord with a lot of excess cash, because he just sold over a billion dollars worth of assets, said he was putting his money in equity markets and treasuries to protect it. What about lending options for these landlords, though? That's where it gets tricky. So if other regional lenders don't have enough deposits on hand to make loans, landlords will have to go to the big banks. The problem, though, is in a high interest rate environment, regional banks were still offering really competitive rates, um, much better than what the bigger banks might offer. And that becomes a bigger deal for rent-stabilized multifamily, as Keith mentioned. So we know that asset class has lost an exceptional amount of value. Since the rent law passed in 2019, a lot of properties are underwater. So when they have to refinance, the higher fees and interest rates that big banks will charge could sink some of those owners. And that's not even the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is national banks won't lend to those owners at all. I talked to one landlord who manages 700 some units, and she said she just dealt with us on a building that's underwater and needed to refinance. The regional banks just said, no way, we're not going to lend to you. So at the top, we mentioned that crypto played a role in signatures collapsed. What was the deal there? Okay, I'm going to do an overview, and then I'm going to throw it to Keith. So signature got into crypto into 20... So Signature got into crypto in 2018. It opened this digital payment platform that was called Signet, and the tech let customers move funds by converting U.S. dollars to the bank's digitized currency. So to be clear, Signature insisted that it did not hold crypto, but it did absolutely appeal to crypto clients, and it was one of the first banks to embrace digital currency. So what did that mean for deposit growth? It meant that the bank enjoyed a lot of it. Signature recorded crypto clients' deposits as non-interest-bearing. That's what they showed up as on balance sheets, which means that they're basically free money the bank can lend out for pure profit. Like It doesn't have to pay those folks interest on their deposits. So by the third quarter of 2020, about 30% of the bank's $54 billion in deposits were non-interest-bearing, so crypto-linked. By the end of 2021, that number had gone up to 42% of $106 billion were crypto-linked. And at that point, Signature hooks up with FTX. Oh, God. Not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. So bad move in hindsight. That's in October 2021. It's right when crypto is doing the hottest it's ever done. Bitcoin is approaching its $64,000 peak. Everything is really sunny. And then the next month, the crypto winter begins. Bitcoin plummets. Signature loses 19% of its crypto-linked deposits, and they keep falling. And then when FTX goes under, that's the next November, so November 2022. How does that factor into Signature's demise? Yeah, so a couple of things there. Signature at first says, don't panic. We only have this minimal exposure to FTX. They said, one-tenth of a percent of its deposits were linked to FTX. 
But a month or so before, about 23% of the bank's total holdings were crypto-linked. We got that from earnings. And we see in its fourth quarter earnings call in January that it ended up losing $7.4 billion in deposits in the last three months of 2022. And then it expected to lose 3 to $5 billion more. And it also said that that was going to affect lending going forward. So the CEO said, yeah, we're probably going to have to cut back on lending to the tune of $10 billion. So tell me that's the extent of Signature's exposure to FTX. So no, in February, we actually got this lawsuit alleging that Signature knew FTX was engaged in fraud. And the lawsuit claims that the bank looked the other way, which is interesting because in that January earnings call, CEO Joseph DePaola, who stepped down soon after, said the bank was duped in a Bernie Madoff-like situation. But really, Signature has had a history of hairy litigation. Investors alleged it was connected to a Ponzi scheme back in the 2010s. It also got sued for allowing the CEO of a Chinese education company to embezzle $35 million. Signature has denied those allegations, though. And then, Keith, you covered this suit over these Signature employees being allegedly involved in a wire fraud scheme. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the lawsuit in December about discrimination uh, one accusation was that two employees at Signature were accused of wire, a wire, $1 million wire fraud scheme, but were still allowed to keep their jobs. And you also recently wrote about this connection between SVB and Signature Bank. Can you talk about that too? Yeah, so that was interesting. So most of Signature's loan growth actually stemmed from this group called its Fund Banking Division, which was founded back in 2018 by a group of Silicon Valley bank executives. And that group really focused on lending to private equity investors. And a lot of it seemed to be kind of bridge loans for private equity to hold off from capital calls. Yeah, that's interesting because we're, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for those connections between SVB, Signature, First Republic, um, any sort of overlap there. But is there anything else that you're looking at in regards to Signature? Yeah, we're taking a deeper dive into their real estate loan portfolio. I mean, half of their loans are through the rent-stabilized sector. And a lot of the landlords are kind of mid-sized landlords, and they also did a lot of loan-on-loan financing. And they're involved in a lot of hairy deals with rent-stabilized landlords trying to kick out, uh, where they're trying to kick out rent-stabilized tenants and bring in free market tenants. So we're just taking a deeper look at their quality of their real estate loans and, um, you know, if regulators were looking at any of this stuff. The last thread that I wanted to touch on is that these bank collapses have really thrown the Fed through a loop. And everyone is asking the question, will they keep raising rates as they planned or not? There's a saying that the Federal Reserve raises rates until something breaks, and until now, nothing has really broken. I read this fantastic quote that really sums up the ramifications of the Fed's rate hikes. Peter Bokvar, the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, told CNBC, quote, there's a lot of collateral damage when you not just raise rates after a long period at zero, but the speed at which you're doing so creates a bull in a china shop. The bull was able to skate around not knocking anything over until recently, but now it's starting to knock things over. So what do investors and economists think the Fed is going to do? Here's CNBC's senior economic reporter, Steve Leisman, on that. But let me just talk quickly, uh, uh, Andrew, about the lifeline that's been given from the Swiss National Bank to Credit Suisse. It has put a Fed rate hike back into play 
for next week. If you take a look at what's happened here uh, to the March, uh, uh, the probability of a hike next week by the Federal Reserve rising to 69%. Guys, we have a, a graphic in the back on that uh, as priced into the Fed Fund's futures market. 31% chance you can see right there of a uh, uh, the Fed having no change. At the most anxious moments yesterday, these numbers were reversed with markets betting firmly on a pause. Not the case anymore. But the outlook for the Fed remains pretty much in very dovish territory, more so than it did a week ago amid concerns of the impact of increased risk in the banking sector. So once Credit Suisse got that huge injection from the Swiss central bank, investors think the Fed will just continue along its journey to quash inflation. Right. Now that we have a little bit more certainty with Credit Suisse, which we haven't really talked about, but there's a lot there too, um, and First Republic getting that huge lifeline, investors and economists think that the Fed will just keep with its plan instead of taking a break to assess the situation and maybe raise rates later. Obviously, not everyone agrees with that decision. Some think that the Fed will still take that breather, or that at least they should, um, but we have to see. Yeah, CNBC writing on Thursday characterized this moment as a policy crossroads for the Fed. So if it backs off, there's the risk that inflation will persevere. But if it continues, there could be even more carnage. The stakes right now feel probably the highest they've been in the past year. Yeah, we'll be watching very closely over the next couple of days to see what comes next for rates and what that means for real estate. Until then. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can check us out at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea you'd like to share, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at distress across the commercial sector, unless something major happens, like another bank collapses. Tune in then.